Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is New Books and Science Fiction. I'm Rob Wolf. And I'm Brendan Weser. And this is the hard-boiled and cynical edition. Today we're discussing a novel about cops, a detective for hire, murder, and a select group of people who are very big, very old, and very rich, and comfortable in both the upper echelons of society and a city's dark corners. Our guest today is Nick Harkaway, author of Titanium Noir. Nick's in-real-life name is Nicholas Cornwell. As Nick Harkaway, though, he is the author of the novels The Gone Away World, Angel Maker, which was nominated for the 2013 Arthur C. Clarke Award, Tiger Man, Nomen, and a non-fiction study of the digital world, The Blind Giant, Being Human in a Digital World. He has also written two novels under the pseudonym Aidan Truin. Nick joins us from his home in London. Thanks for coming on the show. Hi. Hi, how's it going? It's pretty good, thank you. Yes, it's a, it's, a, it's sort of a warm, muggy evening here in London, but I'll take it. Excellent. Well, weather, that's probably typical. It feels like the weather here is, has been wacky. Well, you've had some very wacky weather. I mean, I, 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 I heard you um, talking to Karen Lord, who's amazing, um, and talking about, obviously, you had the wildfire smoke and so on. We haven't had anything like that yet. But what we have had is, is a baking hot June and, and then a, a, a very cold start to July. It's been very weird. Well, same here. But, you know, when this airs, the weather will be even, it'll probably be snowing and there'll be a new ice age or something. So <laughs> There we go. More for me to write about. So should we dive in and talk about Titanium Noir? No, that's not why we're here. We're, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> oh, okay. Let's do something else. <laughs> there we go. Let's just keep talking about the weather. Well, golf. I know nothing about golf. I've never known anything about golf. Oh, so it'd be fascinating if we just chatted about something we know nothing about, unless you know something about it, Brenda. Uh, I know a little bit, but I think I know more about Titanium Noir than I do about golf. (laughs) All right. All right. So let's talk noir. Let's go into the dark noirish world you've created. In this world, just to set it up for our listeners, the richest, most powerful people, they aren't the government leaders or technology titans like uh, a Musk or a Bezos or a Zuckerberg, there's a guy who invented and controls something called Titanium 7. We thought maybe it would be great if you told our listeners a little bit about Stefan Tonfamekaska and explain what Titanium 7 is. Yeah, absolutely. So Stefan is the big guy. I mean, literally huge. Because when you take Titanium 7, uh, not only do you get younger, you get it resets your physical age to about 17, um, but you also get 20% bigger each time you take it. And all the super rich take it, right? So, you, you know, your Musks and so on, your Zuckerbergs all end up after two, three, four hundred years, they end up 14 foot tall and commensurately broad, right? It's not just that you get 
stretched. It's that you get you put on the mass as well, so they become physically immense. And Stefan is the original Titan. He's he's he either invented or he bought the company or owned the company which invented. But because of course all of this information is is to some extent lost in the mists of time, right? Because it's two, three, four hundred years ago. Uh, you know, depending on exactly how old everybody is, and the only way you would know that would be through history, which by definition, if you're a Titan, you probably control or can edit. So there's a really interesting, once you get beyond the memory of, you can tell I'm writing the second book, can't you? Once you get beyond the memory of, of um, normal lifespan human beings, you're in a space where Titans remember, but everyone else has to rely on the written record. I, you know, I'm ahead of myself, but that's what fascinates me this time today. Um, so yeah, Stefan is the enormous, terrifying, industrialist monarch god, and in a sense, anybody in the world of power ultimately comes knocking at his door, because when they get to that age, the only way that they can carry on is to take the drug. So you have in the world, uh, I think we have a, a few thousand titans maximum in, in the story, uh, and everybody comes to Stefan's door and begs to be let in. I wanted to ask a, a follow-up. You're talking about the the historical record, the memory. There is something that happens that's that's referenced in the book that becoming a Titan isn't all necessarily a positive. I mean, you become big and strong, but you might become physically... It's almost like Stefan maybe has a little trouble like walking normally because he's just so big. And on top of that, some people at least have issues with their memory. And so it's interesting that you talk about the Titans being the preservers of memory, if also physically it does something when it rejuvenates them and kind of sets back the clock, resets the clock. It also does something with their with their memories, which yeah. which makes a crime makes for an interesting crime story. Of course, like you yeah. know, who 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 are these people? Who were they before they they got their titanium seven or their last batch? Well, but the thing is, I mean, and actually, of course, this is part of the game uh, for me. Is that what you then have is an unreliable history in every direction? You know, if, if the record belongs to the very wealthy and the very wealthy can't be depended on to remember things, you know, you have an interesting sort of uh, societal disconnect. And this is a very much a simple book by comparison with with something like Nomon, which had sort of five rotating characters kind of, you know, going around a sort of central reality, but maybe one reality supersedes the next and so on, which was quite a challenging read. What I wanted to do with, with Titania Noir and, you know, subsequently with any further stories I might conceivably tell in that space was create something where each individual story was tolerably simple, but the cumulative effect, the, the, uh, the layering, the strata of the stories would, would ultimately produce something that was as complex and as nuanced and interesting. Uh, so that when you kind of look at the whole group or you read them again, or you kind of look at them in, in, in the round, you kind of, you're looking at something which has a bigger, uh, a, a, a bigger story going on. And with that bigger story, I'm I'm curious as we're still kind of talking about Titans too, that they are so distant from the non-Titans in the story. And and part of that baby that, you know, these are the ultra wealthy, it could be the fact that there are only two thousand of them in the world, their physicality, but you can feel that distancing themselves from humanity almost. Mm. I'm wondering, is this a 
you know, is this an on-purpose commentary on immortality or were you, did you mm. have other designs in mind? So it's not a, a particularly uh, an on-purpose discussion of immortality. I, I always think there's an immediate rush when people start writing about longevity treatments and so on in science fiction. And you know, I mean, well, by definition, almost anything that you write on that topic, people will class as science fiction. But So as soon as you start writing about that and it goes it actually occurs in kind of other mythologies um, and stories of, of the fantastical. As soon as people have the possibility to become something more than human, there's a rush to say that there's something wrong with that, that it comes with inherent disadvantages, that it it uh, it distances you and it takes you away from who you really are. And, and I always find that a little bit frustrating. I always, I, the, the story, I mean, the, the kind of the animated movie of Hercules, where at the end of it, Hercules has to decide whether or not to become a god. And, you know, I'm just kind of like, well, I mean, say yes, because you can then do incredible things for your friends. You know, it's not necessarily a kind of a zero-sum game. And maybe you could, you know, maybe you can do more as somebody who is more than human than you can, I mean, by definition. And I, with with the Titans in, in Titanium Noir, um, yes, I did give a kind of hard limit on how long they can go on. Well, it's actually a soft limit on how long they can go on taking the drug. Because you, I think when you're telling a fantastical story like this, you have to indicate the kind of boundaries of it uh, and there have to be rules which you can sort of lean into because you're otherwise in kind of impossibly unfamiliar territory and so the thing is you know if you actually make a human frame bigger and heavier uh, and expanding like that it, it, you know there's no sense there's, there's no way that that kind of guarantees kind of perpetual expandability you know really large animals ha- in, in our gravity using one heart and so on have a limit on how big they can be, you know, and that's why whales live in the ocean, not kind of rolling around on, on um, grassy plains somewhere and why the dinosaurs, you know, had sort of, you know, different ways of dealing with scale. And so the cube law applies. So, so it's not purely just kind of me malevolently saying, actually, there's a downside to immortality or actually extended mortality. Um, it is, it is about kind of recognizing the limits of the real and, giving a sense that you know that the, even the titans have further to go it's interesting because it seems like your superhero here is not really a superhero but our our narrator who is the hero of the story is a detective and you think in a story where there are these super strong super big super long-lived people they would be the ones coming to the rescue but he's an ordinary unmedicated regularly sized human being and he's he's the one who's been called in to solve a crime. I mean, he's a, he's a detective mm. for hire. And so can you talk about why you've made the regular person the hero, the person coming in to solve the crime, and what makes him so special? Because he does, he is able to navigate mm. a world of humans, a world of supersized humans, the Titans. He sort of gets respect from all sides. Um, and he somehow finds a way to manage, even when it comes to mm. physically fighting, although he, of course, has to cheat. I mean, uh, well, I was going to say use more than just his his <laughs> his physics, you know, his, his yeah, body. quite smart. Yeah, I mean, so the first thing is, I mean, as I was sort of saying in, in response to Brenda's question, I, you know, the, the point about the, the Titans being distant is that's absolutely right, but it's more about them being very, very rich. Um, I mean, my experience, my limited experience of very wealthy people, and I think we've seen a lot of it in the news recently, is that I, I, I think it's not an entirely healthy thing to be. 
It seems to me that there's, if you're so rich that you're no longer in touch at all with the kind of normal lived experience, your attitude to risk, your attitude to kind of, I don't know, all sorts of things, it seems to go askew. And there are these kind of weird wealth tragedy events uh, which of which we've seen, I, I can think of two in the last month or so, but then there are actually a lot more where essentially people exceed, they, they have no limits and they kind of exceed then, you know, what is doable. So Cal, the, the detective character is, yeah, but to all intents and purposes, a completely ordinary guy. And he has, he has, the, he's the sort of classic noir voice in the sense that he's slightly jaded slightly cynical he has some experience but we're not clear on exactly what it is and he's found a niche which is in some ways a slightly depressing niche in in the society of of the city on the shores of lake arthurus which is where the action takes place uh this kind of deep dark cold alpine geologically alpine lake and uh, Cal is the is the cutout between the society of the very rich and life extended and everyone else in the sense that when something happens that involves a crime committed by or committed against a titan, there has to be someone to blame. He's basically the societal fuse. You know, he, he, he's the, the breaker uh, and, you know, they, they bring him in. And if he screws up the investigation, they can point at him and say, well, it wasn't the police department. It wasn't the Titan security who did this bad stuff, who messed up. It was just this one guy that we bring in who's supposed to be an expert. But look how badly he messed up. Obviously, we won't do that again. So he lives on a knife edge. He exists, in a sense, to be disparaged if necessary. And he deals with when billionaires go wrong or things go wrong for billionaires. So it's quite a depressing lifestyle that he has. And there are reasons why he's ended up that way. But at the same time, of course, you know, I don't want this to be a depressing book. So he has a very, very dry uh, appreciation of the ludicrousness of the world he's moving through. And one of the things that surprises me is how many people find this book in places very funny. I didn't really intend it to be laugh out loud funny, but bits of it apparently just do catch people unawares. Maybe we could talk about the idea of noir. What makes this a noir story? I mean, he does, Cal does have a voice that sounds like a Dashiell Hammett character. You know, he's mm-hmm. he's hard-boiled. He's a little cynical. You know, he's, he's seen the dark side of people. Merriam-Webster defines noir as crime fiction featuring hard-boiled, cynical characters and bleak, sleazy settings. So is that how you define noir? So I'm very comfortable with that definition. I found a slightly more exacting one a little while ago, which was interesting, where which which insisted that there had to be a moral equivalence between the detective and or the central character who reveals the story of the world to us, and the characters they're investigating and interacting with. So and and you know either jury or something you know very much has that about it. You know there's no contention of moral virtue. There's just revenge and anger and capability uh, so with cal sounder it's a little bit friendlier than than that absolutely kind of all the way into the dark noir the universe is dangerous and as you say the voice is cynical there's a lot of bad things going on it's maybe in a strange way it's maybe a little bit more gothic in the sense that it's kind of this massive overgrowth of life and vitality and you know explosive uh, almost ecstatic life if you're a titan uh, and then everybody else kind of in the shadows kind of trying to reach the sun and there's a you know sense of doom and 
life and death are the flip sides of the coin and so on. So I'm happy with that being kind of called noir. I think there may be scholars of noir who will be shaking their heads at the title of the book and kind of going, whoa, the man doesn't know what he's talking about, which is fine. Along those lines, when you were kind of writing in the style of noir, were there elements that were a must-have for you or were there any elements that you wanted to stay away from? I realize increasingly that as I write, the first thing that I need is the sense, the mood. I I sort of have to, the the mood defines the edges of the world for me. The mood tells me what the character is going to be like and so on. And I, I wanted this to have that feeling of shadows and cynicism and the possibility of better things which you have to constantly strain for and you maybe never get and poison chalices and so on but there are various kind of aspects of it that there's a kind of grotesquerie of violence in some noir fiction which i can't go to like i can sort of edge up against it and i can indicate it and you know there are some violent sequences in in titanium noir but the Chinatown sequences that you, you know, which you think, if you think of the Nicholson movie and so on, there's a cruelty in them, which I find it very hard to, I, I can probably dig it out of myself, but it's not where I'm comfortable. So that was, I guess, you know, again, there's, there's this sense of not quite going all the way into the shadows, however dark it becomes, there's always a way back. There's something about noir that feels like a throwback. Even though Titanium Noir, I mean, you said it was set 300, 400 years in the future. I, I wouldn't have known that exactly. It felt like an unspecified future. I'm only, I'm dating that from Stefan's age. Like, so, you know, it's a quite a naive way of dating the story in the sense that if, if Stefan is, is about to announce Titanium 7 today, then, the, you know, it takes, we know roughly how old he is and how many times he's been dosed. So it takes that long to get to where we are. The specific setting, I did not want to get into too much because I I actually do know exactly where and when it all is, but I'm not sure how important that is. In a sense, the city is self-contained or the, you know, the arena is self-contained, you know, uh, and it's sort of recognizable for what it is as soon as you go there. I'm not sure that it adds anything if I say, and incidentally, this is not the case, if I say it's a lake in Austria. The feeling I got from the book was that it was sort of both back in time and in the future. Yeah. So the the science really, I mean, the the main new ingredient that you've thrown into it is titanium seven. Otherwise, a lot feels familiar. And I thought it was fascinating that the the murder weapon, and I think we haven't said this yet, but the the story revolves around an investigation where a titan was murdered. The murder weapon is a twenty two Derringer, which, <laughs> when I looked it up, it said it's you know. A, Abraham Lincoln was killed with a Derringer. A Derringer. Yes. So it's like a small handgun that's been around for a very long time. Yes, and I, you know, uh, and the sort of the tools of murder are kind of limited. You know, I mean, you can. It's actually very interesting. So I have been reading a lot of Seicho Matsumoto recently. It was introduced to me. There's a, you know, those, that danger area in the bookshop around where you buy your books and they they stack up books that you might want near the till, and and indeed the new, I think it's a Penguin edition of of Tokyo Express was there and I picked it up and I was captivated by it so then I went and read a bunch of his books they said he's he's the Japanese equivalent of Rex Stout which I'm not sure is true but I apparently he wrote a lot of books and only a few of them are translated but he has some quite novel murder methods or at least one really very strange one but mostly when you read detective fiction unless you're into the kind of you know the sort of terrible sort of Sherlock Holmes 
speckled band kind of stories, but you kind of coax the snake to creep down the, the, the side of the bed and so on. The means of murder, you know, there's a limited number of ways to kill a human being. Uh, and, and actually, I didn't, you know, again, I didn't want to make the, the murder specifically the means. I didn't want to do a forensics case, you know. So uh, I, I like the, the notion of just, you know, it's a gun because that's a lot of people get killed with guns. Well, it definitely felt very noir. Killing someone with a gun is, is the noir, like every poster of a noir movie is someone with a gun, whether it's a shadow with a revolver or or kind of Rico Bandello and Little Caesar, you know, you, you're, you're dealing with, you know, the gun is bound up with noir and vice versa. And cities too, they're, they're part of mm. noir as well. So maybe we could talk a little bit about the city where it's set. And I'm afraid to say the name, but you helped us before we started recording, pronouncing it. So I'm going to give it a shot. Shersenesos. Shersenesos, yeah. That's, so that's like the district. That, that's, as it were, the kind of, I don't know what the equivalent would be. Like it's, it's, it's the uptown. It's the, it's the Upper East Side or it's the, Man- it's, it's the kind of central area of Manhattan with the, the, whatever. It's, it's kind of the area where commerce and wealth go to play. Then the, the city itself is actually, the, I think it's referred to as Othrus by connection with the lake. But I'm not sure that the city ever formally gets a name in Titanium Noir, actually. But I mean, in my head, it's Othrus. And so, as you said, I guess maybe you've already explained, but it did feel like a self-contained place. There wasn't a sense of it being, you know, what what's the larger nation? What's the larger world? It's like all eyes, the world is in this one spot. Yeah, the limited arena. Because again, I guess there's the that's very much in the mode of that kind of detective fiction where the city itself is a character and the detective is the city. You know, they they sort of they know all the. Actually, this is a Robert Warshout thing. You know, the the, the uh, a cultural critic from the U.S. Really interesting writing, and he he wrote about the gangster and the the man of the city and talked about somebody who's privy to all the secret passages, the speakeasies, the back ways of the city, who knows how to bribe a cop or how to find an illegal crap game or whatever it is. The person who occupies that space is the city, represents the city, inhabits the city. And in some way, there's a kind of, they, they, they express the essence of the city. And you see that very much in noir fiction, detective fiction, and so on, that somehow the well, your, your um, Humphrey Bogart character perfectly expresses, you know, the environment in which he exists. Are noirs typically written in first person? Uh, so I know either jury is. I couldn't give you a stat on whether that's normal or not. I had written the the, um, the two Aidan Truen novels, which are which are kind of which are also kind of noir, but also they're so madcap that they don't really get that 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 kind of label. I mean, they're clearly not in the in the kind of mannered style of noir. They're very much, but but at the same time, there is that moral equivalence, like the the the, the hero or the anti-hero in the book. I mean. He could be either, right? I mean, he's a terrible human being. Um, and so there is a kind of moral equivalence in a way between him and the people he's fighting with. Uh, and, and I told those in the first person. Um, and so then when I came to do this, which in a strange way, I mean, unintentionally, but it, the, the, this book is a kind of fusion of the things that I learned writing Jack Price and the things that I learned writing Nomon and the desire to write like a smaller, simpler, but really enjoyable kind of thriller. Or, you know, so I just, I fell into I. I. That was just where it came out. I mean, I wonder in a detective story, are there pros and cons? I mean, you have a narrower view, so we don't get to to see the viewpoint of the killer, for instance. Yeah, that's, but see, but that's interesting because the viewpoint of the killer is, to me, is much more a kind of 
that's got a more kind of a, a either a kind of werewolf or a psychopath movie kind of vibe. You know, it's it, it, that that view of the back of the victim as you move towards them or, you know, the, the, you're cleaning up the, the crime scene and so on. But to me, I think that's a very difficult thing to do well unless you're prepared to go into, really into the kind of the depths of, of the mind of the other person. And I, I like the single viewpoint where the author as are the well the author the reader and the audience sorry and the, and the detective basically all know the same thing at the same time like there's no disparity there's no kind of god view there's just what you know and if the audience thinks they can get ahead or the readership thinks they can get ahead of the detective that's great because that's part of the enjoyment but at the same time you as the author you have to kind of reel them in again and go kind of are you sure because i don't want you to be that far ahead of me and if you're going to be that far ahead i definitely don't want you to be right because i want you to come back for the reveal and go oh wow Speaking of reveal, Brenda and I were talking before we started about your use of pen names. And we were curious, right, Brenda? We were curious about why an author decides to use a pen name. You know, sometimes I, I mean, I thought of pen names as, well, you do it because you don't want anyone to know who you really are, you know, but that's not really, doesn't seem really to be the case. It's certainly not the case in your, your situation, but I don't think that's usually the case. So why do you use a pen name and, um, or indeed two, yeah. So, so it was pragmatic for the, in the first instance. I, my real name is Cornwell, and I walked into a bookshop here in London, and I looked at the shelf C, and I found Patricia, Bernard, Susan, and John <laughs> Cornwell, all of them, and between them about eighty books. And I was going to, I'm going to publish one book, you know, my first book, and it's going to go on this shelf. And it will never be seen again because it will just disappear into the fog of Cornwell. And so I just decided I would use a pseudonym. And then there was an additional thing, which was uh, that a lot of the publishing community in London already knew me because my father was the, the, the was David Cornwell, who was also John le Carre. And I didn't want to get into kind of immediately into conversations about that when I was trying to sell my first book. It just kind of didn't sit right with me. Um, and I was writing something that was very different. I wasn't writing a spy story. I wasn't writing anything even thrillerish or noirish. You know, Gone Away World is a completely madcap, bonkers book. And I just wanted to step away from that. And I was, good Lord, however old I was then. Uh, let's gloss over that. But in any case, you know, that wasn't where I wanted to be. So uh, I chose, I just, I opened Brewer's Dictionary of Phrase and Fable and I stuck a pen in it about 10 times. And one of the names that I came up with was Harkaway. So that was, that was, that was, I was like, that's great. I love it. I'm going to be Nick Harkaway. That's fantastic. My apologies to the Harkaway families around the world who occasionally write to me and say, are we related? Um, <laughs> no, I'm really sorry. It didn't occur to me. I was stealing your name. Uh, it was exuberant rather than wicked. Uh, and then Aidan Truin, that was, again, it was a pragmatic decision. Uh, no one was coming out. I wrote uh, the the first Jack Price, the price you pay, very very quickly in a rage over the political situation in the UK, and then suddenly I had two manuscripts, two books, which were essentially going to be published at the same time, and we didn't want to kind of eclipse one with the other or muddy the message, whatever. So I was like, okay, well I'll just be another person. And and Aidan Truen, in fact, is is a uh, uh, an anagram of. Uh, the character in, in Nomon, Diana Hunter, who's a, a, a metaphysical pulp novelist. Um, and so I toyed with the idea of 
of actually releasing it as Diana Hunter. And then I was like, no, 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 I, you know, can't be a bit, be a bit smart, just anagrammatize it. If somebody really digs, they'll find it. Incidentally, no one has. Um, so now I just tell everybody. <laughs> you could have done Cornwell with two C's and then you always would have been in the front of the, you know, t- C-C-O-R-N. Wow. Like they do in, like they do in um, telephone books or they used to, no one uses telephone books anymore, but there'd be like quadruple A towing company and then five letter A's towing right, company. Right, 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 right. I, I, yeah, although, but then exactly, why, why, why not just have change your name to something that begins with A and then uh, I, you know, I, also being right at the front in, in a book's context isn't always a good thing. That means you're high top left in the bookstore. All these things you have to think about. It's, it's amazing. I'm not sure that you do. I think maybe I overthought it slightly. I do tend to do that. No, I think that's perfect. I think you should definitely overthink it. And, and I appreciate that somebody's looking at the shelf space when they put, <laughs> when they, when they are writing books and where it might land. So I, I applaud you. Okay. Okay, well, I feel better now. <laughs> uh, because you also did it like on purpose, which was great, which a lot of people kind of fall into after the fact. Like you did it on purpose and with intention. So yes, gold yes. star. <laughs> well, it's interesting too because like movie stars have. I think they even you have to you can't register. There's like a registration. You can't have the same name as a, as a someone. Huh in films or it used to be that way anyway i remember stories like you know oh i had to change my name because there already was a xyz so they came up with it i mean it makes sense from a career perspective but in a very practical way i guess they had to do that brenda is there anything else do you have any other questions i i do i want to kind of touch back upon the the city as character and the city as place and and one of the things that I appreciated in this book was that you were able to, if we go back to that Merriam-Webster definition of bleak, sleazy settings or, you know, thinking of gritty settings, I'm curious for you, you know, how hard was it to create that gritty feeling without relying on, you know, what we typically think of or the stereotypes or tropes of things like illegal drugs and sex trafficking? Because, those can oftentimes not be done well. So I appreciate that you've been creative, but like how hard is that for you to create that that feeling without falling back on those? I think I mean as I said, it's it's kind of a mood thing. I, I would have I would have used those if it had felt like I could do them right and and they they kind of meshed with the the mood that I wanted, and you know, and we do we go to you know to to Victor's club, and there's a strong implication that any of those things could be available there, but we don't necessarily, you know, just just the just the architecture of the space, the implication of corruption and vice is already enough, and so you know, and so then what corruption do we actually see? Well, we see a cage fight. And that's that's okay, you know. That tells you already what kind of space you're in. And and Victor, the character, just already oozes, you know, the possible, the endless possibilities of, of vice and money. So then you're okay, you know. You, you you don't need to be more specific than that. Obviously, I don't like cliches and stereotypes. You know, when, when I catch myself kind of drifting in that direction, I have to subvert it. And one of the things that I actually struggle with is in a sense the opposite of what you're talking about is that I am almost incapable of drawing a straight line between two points. One of the things for me that was very difficult about this book was holding 
at least a modicum of simplicity so that it's not always undercutting itself so that sometimes you just get delivered the kind of necessary architecture of the world without me kind of saying, oh, but actually it's completely different this time. If you had this conversation with my editors, they'd be like, yeah, Nick's a great guy, but very often you have to kind of grab him by the feet and drag him back down and put his feet on the ground and say, not every single page has to take the audience back on themselves and hold them upside down. You know, you can actually just let people enjoy the moment. So I had to be, in a sense, you know, vigilant about the opposite. But yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, obviously crime and crimes that we find repellent, but are also, you know, which deal with appetite and therefore have a kind of sense that we or someone could be attracted to them are very much a part of noir. It's about, it's about excess and cruelty as much as it's about shadows and saving the day. So you, I think I had to imply them and allow for them, but I didn't want to exploit them or dwell on them in a kind of lurid way. That, that doesn't strike me as what I want to do. Can I ask a question about having a dad who is very successful as a writer? Did, mm. did you share your writing with him? Did you compete with him? I mean, what, what was that like for you? I mean, the first thing is genuinely, I can't answer that question because I never had anybody else for a dad. So I don't know what it would be like not to have that. Did we compete? No. I mean, and like also, how could you, you know? But did he perceive competition between us? Weirdly, yes, absolutely. He went and did an event at the Cambridge University at a college there. And after he'd done this event, he was an amazing performer. You know, he was one of those people who can absolutely captivate a room. And he did this event and one of the tutors there came up to him afterwards and said, I'm such a fan. I love, I loved hearing you speak. It's so great. And if I could make so bold, I also read your son's book and I loved it. And I was like, oh, that's marvelous. And he came home and he was grumpy for days. My mother was howling with laughter. She was like, you have to give him this one. Like, it's not like that changes the fact that everyone thinks you're a megastar. And he wasn't being ungenerous. He was just terrified. I was like, are you kidding? You know, have you seen like the, you know, the kind of golden daggers and the pan awards and the this is and the that's that are sort of dotted around for your sales dotted around the house to used as doorstops it, it was kind of goofy moment between us where uh, you know i could tease him about it he, he knew it was ridiculous but he kind of still felt it which was charming i mean just really did we ever talk about writing very rarely directly but you know he never sat me down and gave me a master class it wouldn't have occurred to him he would have he would have thought that was terribly rude he would have said it would it would spoil my writing because he could only talk about how he wrote not how i wrote we wrote on very different topics or i write and he wrote very different topics in different ways uh, did i show him my work absolutely he always claimed to have looked at it, usually claimed not to have properly read it. My brother Simon said to me recently that, yeah, sure, he claimed not to have read it, but he was remarkably well acquainted with everything that happened in your books. You know, I, it, it, I don't know what it was like. I, it was great. So, so he didn't give you feedback. He, he didn't say, he didn't give you notes and say, no, you have to do it this way. Or... God, no, no, he would never have done that. that just, I mean, you know, apart from anything else, you, you know, you, he was a guy for whom sort of accidentally or 
or you know by by mischance offending someone was broadly as as bad a thing as you could do like he would almost rather have accidentally killed someone than offended them you know so that that would just be too terrifying uh, as a project between fathers and sons my mother on the other hand was absolutely fearless about that stuff if i sent her my my typescript early on i would get it back with with you know annotations i mean line by line i get a line edit out of her it was great actually but we talked obliquely and we shared frustrations. I would say, you know, page 17 is really bugging me. You know, I, I have everything else in the book, but page 17 is just a disaster. And he'd say, you know, as it were, you think page 17 is a problem. I tell you, page 211, that when you get to page 211, that's when you're going to be in trouble. You know, we, and we talked about kind of how things might work or how things might not work. You know, I have a character who does this, but it drives me crazy because I don't actually want them to do that. You know, and he would say, well, you know, you, you've either got to change the character at, at base or you've, you know, you've got to let them do the thing that they're choosing to do. You can't, you can't bend a character, which obviously leads to a given outcome. If you've got to either edit the character so that it leads to the outcome you want or, or work out how to deal with the outcome you've got. You know, we, so we would have a case, but I mean, that's like once, twice in 15 years, we might have that conversation. <laughs> it was not a kind of rolling masterclass. Fascinating. Well, I hope one day, perhaps you're inspired to write a book about a father and son who are both writers, but involved <laughs> in some, some, I don't, it doesn't have to be a noirish mystery, but something, you know, some, some intrigue. I can totally imagine there being clues embedded in their manuscripts or a dialogue that only they can see or something. See, and now, so this is where my editor is listening to this and he is like, or, or my editor here doesn't know me as well yet because we're working together sort of for the first time on Tatane Noir, but uh, uh, so Edward Gastemeyer in New York is, is sitting there and he's hearing this and he's going, yes, Nick, you should do that. And immediately I say this, his eyes are going to roll up into his head, his hand's going to go onto his forehead. Immediately you say that, I'm thinking that's a very Borgesian situation where you've got two father and son writers and there are secret messages and encodings and obfuscations. And very clearly that's a kind of magical realist novel rather than a, rather than a crime one. And Edward's just like right now thumping his hands together going like, Nick, a straight line from A to B uh, to C. It's okay. You're allowed. So he, he doesn't like Bor- Borgesian then? He loves, he, he loves it. And he enjoys every time I deliver a, a, a new impossible typescript to him. Edward is, is amazing. But he is occasionally called upon in the interest of everyone's sanity to remind me that it's, it's okay to take out one layer of complexity uh, and deliver something that, that people can read without... Uh, kind of bending their head around particle physics or, you know, getting a degree in philosophy. And I, I mean, I'm picking on Edward slightly because, uh, you know, uh, you have to have a, uh, a phantom editorial hand uh, kind of telling you to behave if you're a writer. But, but no, I mean, uh, as a matter of reality, we have an amazing time. But, but I definitely do, and I'm conscious of it in myself. It, it, it's, it's um, well, Terry Pratchett said that with wizards, if you give two wizards opposite ends of a rope, their immediate reaction is to pull in opposite directions. And I think that's probably me. I don't feel like you've been pulling in opposite directions during this interview. It's been great having you on the show. Oh, thank you very much. It's been great fun. We've been talking to Nick Harkaway, whose novel Titanium Noir was released from Knopf in May. I'm Brendan Wesser. And I'm Rob Wolf. I'll be back next month with a new edition of New Books in Science Fiction. Marshall Poe is our editor and founder of the New Books Network, and Leanne Wilson is co-editor. 
Our theme music is by Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com. Please subscribe to the show, leave a review, tell your friends, and spread the love. Until next time, have a good one.